This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 183, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Yusuf Ozdalga, partner at QED Investors, to talk about what kind of value add most helps founders and their companies. Or, metaphorically speaking, what sun, what rain, and what compost will make your trees fruit better and faster? QED Investors is a leading VC firm focused on investing in the early stage hence their deep knowledge of what works in growing seedlings. They are in the US, the UK and Latin America, have made over 120 investments, including an amazing 19 eventual unicorns. Notable investments include Creditkarna, Clearscore and SoFi. Yusuf leads QED's investments in the UK and Europe with a focus on payments, lending, financial infrastructure and prop tech. As we've heard on the show once or twice before, All VCs claim to add value, yet, surprise, surprise, surveys show that founders slash CEOs say that for most VCs, all the value arrived on the day when the cheque was cashed. However, as we shall hear later, QED, with their early stage focus, have spent quite some time creating an infrastructure specifically to provide the necessary added values. But first, what are the value adds that make the difference? What are the equivalents of the metaphorical sun, rain and compost for this startup seedling. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Yosef. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. And you've got many admirable traits, one or two which we may mention a bit later, but one of them you had at birth, which is that uh, Ozdalgar is Turkish name. Yes, that's correct. So my heritage is Swedish-Turkish. My mom is actually Swedish. My dad is Turkish. I grew up in both countries, but predominantly in Turkey. So definitely an interesting mix of two uh, European cultures as I grew up. And so are you pretty fluent in three languages? Yeah, I mean, my native languages are Swedish and Turkish. And I guess English is my third language. But I guess the fluency you can judge for yourself here. So hopefully I don't mess it up too badly today. Well, that's, it's super impressive. As most people find, the Brits have many weaknesses, and one of which is appalling, is that our, our school system... I mean, I learnt French for five years, and I can basically order a beer and <laughs> chips, and, and that's it. It's, it's just appalling trying to learn languages over here. But one thing I'm not sure I've mentioned on the show before, and the relevance in this context of uh, Turkey, is that, uh, as listeners may not know, or as you may or may not know yourself, the ancient Anatolian city of Kanish, which is today's, apologise for my Turkish pronunciation, which I'm sure it isn't as good as yours, Kultepe. We know more about business in Kultepe, or in ancient Kanish, 2000 BC, than anywhere in the entire world until 1000 AD. Even we know more about business in ancient Anatolia 4000 years ago than in the Roman Empire, extraordinarily enough, because some 20-odd thousand clay tablets from private merchants' houses, were found buried there quite some time later, and actually still up to this time actually are being found. And so we get a fascinating picture in passing. If anyone's a complete nerd, they can 
by a book called Ancient Kanesh, a merchant colony in Bronze Age Anatolia, which will explain all, all about it. But when I was researching the history of the company, I was amazed to find, because we think we're so clever today, we think we're such business people in the 21st century, that everything you associate with business, apart from one or two things, existed 4,000 years ago. Return on capital, investments, their version of VCs, foreign exchange, being able to send letters over thousands of miles across Turkey and uh, ancient Assyria. The main thing that didn't exist, but it was probably better off for it, an entirely different conversation, is limited liability. But otherwise, pretty much everything you're going to talk on the show today about, people were talking about and writing about 4,000 years ago in Coltepe, which is pretty phenomenal. That's correct, Mike. Yeah, in one of my blogs, I actually, which I entitled 21st Century Lending, I make a reference to the first known loans made, which according to my research, which probably is quite limited, was made by the Sumerians more than 4,000 years ago. And the Sumerian king Hammurabi had actually legislated to, uh, you know, control interest rates. So you can think of those as the first usury or anti-usury laws. So I think lending to, to kind of support your point there goes back more than four millennia, which is pretty interesting. And today at QD, a lot of our investments obviously are in lending. And it's, we've seen how lending has evolved since the 80s and 90s at Capital One uh, to the 21st century today. But it's very, very interesting to put that into a historical context dating back four millennia. Yes, exactly. And also equity investments and structures to wrap up the investments and stuff like that. So it is quite fascinating. Now, I mentioned your many attributes. It would be a long show to include them all. But one of the uh, more curious ones, not entirely related to business 4,000 years ago, is that you're from a bit further east in terms of traditions, a jiu-jitsu medalist. What was that all about? Yeah, jiu-jitsu is a great sport. Uh, it's a contact sport, obviously, but it is also non-violent. So it's grappling. There is no striking. It is, I like to think about it as chess on the mat. It is a very strategic uh, sport and it takes very long time to master. I'm really at the very beginning of that journey, but um, I've been in some competitions and I joined my first competition after the age of 40, actually. So that should tell you something about my level of competence. But um, I did get a bronze medal uh, at the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam, which is a pretty competitive uh, event. But I was lucky that there was only three people in my age and weight category. So, so that helped me get the bronze. I see. And I thought back in the day when I was bit more involved in martial arty things. Jiu-Jitsu was Japanese. But then more recently, the last decade or so, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is, I don't know, a cross between Jiu-Jitsu and Capoeira or, or something like that, suddenly got very fashionable and everybody in London is doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So very briefly, how does that sort of family work and lineages? Yeah, I mean, Jiu-Jitsu is an offshoot of Judo uh, in Japan. And then uh, the Gracie family basically took it to Brazil in the mid 20th century and they started developing it and it started gaining traction I think in the 70s, 80s and then the big breakout happened in the 90s in the US and a lot of that was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. The really thesis of it goes back to using techniques to be able to master an opponent that's much much bigger than yourself and in that context I think there's a lot of parallel with startups today because most startups take on opponents or competitors that are much bigger than themselves so having some jiu-jitsu skills uh, is actually pretty natural for most uh, startups. And even if they don't think about it as jiu-jitsu skills, in fact, I know that most startups today have to employ the business version of jiu-jitsu skills uh, to win in the marketplace. Ah, I like that. I see what you did there. You've managed to flow very professionally. You should be a, uh, a podcaster. I, I think off the top of my head, 
Akira Kurosawa's first film was about one of the founders of judo or jiu-jitsu or what it was all sort of splitting off in this kind of Asian way into various families actually which was quite interesting I've entirely forgotten the name actually Anyway, I'm getting off the sort of narrow topic, it being after lunch here, of, as you say, startups and what it takes. Before we dive into that, maybe you could give the audience a little bit of a feel of, of your career journey, how you went from where you were to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, very quickly, uh, I studied finance and MIS uh, in college at the University of Virginia in the US. And, you know, it was a hard choice for me. So I was trying to think, which one should I study? Finance, which I was very interested in, money, economics and all those things versus MIS, which was database management, database design. And then I realized I could actually do both. So that was a good choice. It was a bit of hard work at some points, but definitely worth it. And it actually led me to Capital One because Capital One had just IPO'd a couple of years ago as I was graduating in the late 90s. And they were based very close to my university in Virginia at the time. And they were very much combining finance and MIS. So they were using data mining to drive better marketing decisions and better credit decisions. And they were using those big relational databases that were for the first time in history becoming available. And they were using those to do credit cards. So I thought that was a great combination for me. Capital One at that point was more like a scale up. We were probably tripling or doubling every year. Um, so it was a great time to join it. As I said, it was about three years after the IPO when I joined. And it was a great journey because I could use all those skills and be part of an amazing team and amazing leadership at that point and uh, see the company grow. And I was there for about uh, four years until 2001, at which point it started becoming more and more like a bank. And I um, left at that point, did my MBA, but then joined JP Morgan where Capital One became a client. So now I got to see Capital One from a very different perspective, uh, from a capital markets perspective, which I had no appreciation of up to that point. Uh, I helped them with M&A, buying a bank, their first big bank acquisition. So it was really good 360 picture of Capital One. With JP Morgan, I then came to London for family reasons to be close to my Swedish and Turkish family. And uh, here I joined Lehman's principal investing team, which we're basically investing or building lenders. So I did that for many years until the great 2008 uh, cataclysmic collapse. As you know, um, I was there definitely with uh, front row seats to that event, so lots of stories there. And after that, I started my own company, which was probably one of the most enjoyable things and also one of the most difficult things I've done. Got married, uh, unrelated to starting my company or perhaps only indirectly related, and then uh, went into growth PE and then came back full circle with the folks that had set up Capital One in the early days. Uh, first and foremost, Nigel Morris, who was a co-founder, but many of the people who worked with him in those days to join QED. And uh, I set up QED's UK presence here uh, four years ago. We'd been investing in the UK quite a lot before in any case, but I was the sort of first person to be permanently based on the ground. And since then, I've been here. Oh, I see. I'd forgotten if I knew it at all, the connection between QED and Capital One. And I was just talking to someone today about this, actually, in terms of the history of fintech. There's an odd phenomenon, which is that people seem to get younger, although lots more young people than they used to be. When I was young, there weren't so many young people. Now, for some reason, there are lots. And you and I might know what Capital One is and its importance, but actually there'll probably be plenty of people listening to the podcast who, for the sake of argument, weren't even born when Capital One started or were still at school when Capital One was going up exponentially. Anyway, so moving on from that, you've clearly crossed the boundaries or been up the whole growth curve from sort of micro code to small to medium to larger. But before we get into the more nuanced perspective in terms of what firms and what founders need along that curve, just in terms of my simple metaphor of sun, rain and compost are very helpful for fruit trees. 
What do you think the sort of main value adds that founder founders need based on your direct experience of having done it? That's a very good question. And uh, yeah, thanks for pointing out the Capital One connection there. We think of Capital One as the first fintech, but you can have many claimants to that title. But in our view, we were definitely one of the first ones and uh, today valued at about 50 billion or so. I haven't checked recently. Yeah, I mean, I think what founders need is, is the core of QED really. So uh, when Nigel Morris, Frank Rotman set up uh, QED, they wanted to differentiate QED in many ways. And that ethos has survived uh, up to today, 14 years later. And the main thing that we chose was focusing on founders. And then to focus on founders is basically to mean how can we add value to founders? And then that goes back full circle, comes to us. What can we do differently that really helps founders? And then we realized a few key things. So one is we had to make a pretty hard choice that you can play a traditional VC game where you do a lot of investments and hope that some work out. Not to say that all our investments work out, but I will definitely say that a higher proportion of our investments uh, tend to make it, quote unquote. And that's probably because we do less of them and spend time with them much, much more at an early stage. And that zero to one stage is a very crucial stage in a company's life. They're very vulnerable. Things that you don't know about, the unknown unknowns can come and hurt you. And collectively at QED, as we've been doing this for some of us 20 years, some of us 40 years, we have a lot of battle scars and we have not all of them, but at least some of those unknown unknowns figured out and we can help the founders. And that's not to say that other VCs cannot do that, but if you are on 15 or 20 boards, it becomes a lot more harder to do that. And then the tendency very easily becomes to just show up to the board meeting and say, you know, share your expertise or share increased revenue, decrease costs, whatever it is. We try to spend a lot of time with the companies outside of board meetings as well. And we feel like to make that happen, we make a big sacrifice, which is we do less deals. And that has implications for us, as you can imagine. It's a hard choice to make, but we choose to do that. So that's the first thing we do. So just on that one, a typical VC fund might have what? 10 to 15 investments and, and hope sort of one knocks the ball out of the park and another two couple do okay and the others go bust is, I mean, what would you say the random stats are for the industry as a whole compared to your fund and, and how many invest? Yeah, I mean, it really varies across time and it really varies across a lot of funds. I have a lot of statistics of QED. I think we've had a particularly good run in the last five, six years. In general, if you look across the 14 years we've been investing, I think it's been close to 140 or so investments we've made. About two thirds of them actually make it into some shape or form. Some of those obviously become unicorns. So we have 19 unicorns out of those investments, which is a good statistic and a good uh, you know, uh, track record in terms of what we've been able to accomplish and what the founders have been able to accomplish. But in general, two thirds, even if they're not unicorns, do make it into something. And something that could be a 500 million exit, which is still very formidable, but not a unicorn. Sometimes that could be a 40 million exit, but if you got in early enough, that's a decent enough outcome for us and a great outcome sometimes for the founder. Yeah, so I mean, just putting that to context in the recent podcast on angel investing, Richard Hargreaves has got a few decades of experience. I think it was something like one third of your investments give you some money back. In your case, two thirds do. In your case, just under 15% actually turn into a unicorn, which is astronomical return. So your business model has been to, to spend more time with fewer. As a result of spending more time with fewer, just at the level of generalization, before we dive into the detail, if I introduce you tomorrow to a firm that goes through your filtering process 
and maybe you can tell us how much filtering you do, I don't know, 1,000 in one investment or whatever it is. What typically are the sort of two or three things that they're really going to need help with? But first, what is the ratio? So, I mean, all companies need help. Um, I think uh, one of my very good friends, uh, who's also a co-founder in one of our businesses uh, where I'm on the board said, no one founder has the 10 things you need to take your company from zero to one. So I think the best founders realize that they themselves in very, very rare circumstances only could make it. And most founders, even though they're exceptional people, uh, they're not simply superhuman to that extent and they do need help. So that informs their decision actually to A, pick a co-founder that's complimentary, and there's a great deal of intellectual honesty that's needed to say, here's what I'm not good at, here's what this person is good at, so let me partner with this person, and then apply the same lens to their investor to say, us two co-founders, we got eight out of the 10 covered, but this investor can actually help us cover the other two. So I think that sort of intellectual honesty and maturity in a founder is very important. We see sometimes, many times, founders that think they can do it alone, and sometimes they may be right, but again, I would argue that it's very much the exception. Sometimes people don't really value the investor. I think there is some people that are a bit more cynical about this. Investors, as you said, just come up, write the check, come to the board meeting, make some intros, and then disappear. We like to think that we can do more than that, and I think founders in today's competitive market should expect more than that. So I think that's, that's the first thing to emphasize. I think the second thing that's also relating to uh, the core of QED is industry expertise. So at QED, we're all ex-operators in some shape or form, and that we believe is also very important. So, I mean, not to say that it's wrong to come from a banking background or a pure consulting background or a pure investing background, all those can lead you to have really valuable insights. But to really understand founders and to really be able to share experiences, if you've been an operator, especially in the area where this company is uh, you know, operating, you can add a lot of value by virtue of having done this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, five years ago, and share that. So, so we believe in A, we do less deals per partner per year compared to some other funds, but B, we also focus in areas where we have real expertise and can add value. If we feel like we cannot add value, the hurdle for us to do that deal becomes way, way higher and it would be very unlikely for us to do it. Yes, it's interesting because talking about FS over years or decades, it reminds me of a story which is that back in the day, in the 80s, the then head of fixed income, who I displaced and replaced, he asked me what my view was on the Deutsche Mark one day. I said I didn't have a view. And he said, you're paid to have a view. We're paying you to have a view. I said, I've got a view on sterling. Got a view on dollar, got a view on yen. I've got no idea of the Deutsche Mark. And he was very cross. Anyway, as I say, so I had the last laugh and I, I, I took over about a year or so later. But in terms of what I did well in investment, it was precisely on this. Sometimes I have no clue whatsoever. Well, I don't play that game. I don't invest in that. But other times, no, look, I'm quite sure that the dollar's quite solid and, you know, and that kind of thing. But that I found in terms of when I was running a department and people coming in, the average person perhaps isn't enough intellectual self-confidence or just self-confidence in the first place to say, haven't got a clue. Because they don't feel they're, I don't know, really good at Turkish wrestling or music or something like that. I think if somebody's really good at something, they're quite happy at saying, oh, I can't play the flute at all. I'm really good at the guitar. I found that's actually quite rare. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we really value intellectual honesty in our founders, and by extension of that, we try to <laughs> do that ourselves as well. 
So intellectual honesty about what we're good at and not good at is very important. And we're very open to admit in the world of fintech, we're way more fin than we are tech. So also uh, when you go to these, what it takes the 10 things to go from zero to one, the ideal founder for us in many cases, one that's very good at product, very good at tech, knows all that very well, but has some questions about regulation or finance or the lending side of things. Well, that's things that we've been doing for 20, 30, 40 years at a partner level, each one of us, and there we can add a lot of value. So then we become very complementary. So that's also one thing we look for. That's not a rule, by the way, and we don't have rules about these things, but those kind of combinations tend to work out really well because then we're really bringing something to the table and we really look out for those. So we kind of do a bit of lesser deals and be more selective and spend more time with the investments. Two is like this industry expertise and really bringing that and delivering that for the founders. And then, as you said, three is honesty, intellectual honesty, and then one-to-one honesty. So when you speak to founders, it's very easy to say something very typical, go for growth, do this, do that. And, you know, the stereotypical answers have a sort of easy way of emerging if you're not careful. But what we try to do is always be very honest with the founders. They may not want to hear what we're saying, but we will say it. And we ask the founders to do the same. If something bad happens, call us. And we have this slogan, like Ghostbusters, basically, who are you going to call? When something goes wrong, we pride ourselves that we'd like to think most of the founders would call us first because we'll approach it openly. We don't expect to hear good things only from the founders. We want to be there to solve the problems too. So that, so that level of honesty going both ways is also very important for us. Yes, and in terms of finding people with these characteristics, it's probably, if you mentioned being married, it's probably a bit like being married or a successful long-term relationship. Before you start talking about what things you need to do to make your relationship successful, the important thing is you need to go out and kiss lots of frogs to find your prince or princess. And if you don't do that process well, then you're massively reducing your, your chances thereafter. So roughly speaking, how many companies might you look at or QED look at per annum? Do you accept one in two, one in 10, one in 100, one in 1,000, roughly speaking? Yeah, I mean, I can give you a concrete example from my four years in the sort of London office here. So I've done eight investments over four years. Um, very excited about all eight of these. And uh, they're all really great in their own way. And to do that, I probably have talked to somewhere from, in serious sort of conversation, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 companies. And then, you know, in any given year, so that averages out to be two or so per year, which is a benchmark we have, even though it's not a hard and fast rule. In any given year, there's probably 10 companies I consider very seriously for investment and then end up basically doing two out of those 10 that we're very seriously thinking about. And that is very heartbreaking sometimes because when you get so close to companies and you're thinking about doing an investment, the temptation is there to do more than two. Uh, but again, to deliver on our promise, and we're one of the few funds that actually do an MPS score, uh, on ourselves. In fact, we may be the only one as far as I know. So MPS meaning? Net promoter score. So we go to all our founders and we ask them, how would you rate QED? Would you recommend us? And so on. And each partner knows sort of what their score is in a way. Uh, we, we keep it anonymous so that nobody really knows in too much detail, but we do it and publicize it for QED as a whole. And, and to be able to keep that promise and keep that NPS score high, sometimes we need to say no to those eight that we were so close to and really wanted to invest in, but we can't. And in many cases, there's been companies that I did not invest in, but I still helped a lot. Because once you make it to that sort of top 10, 
uh, out of a partner's list in a year, I think there is still a very strong attachment that you still go out of your way to help them. So we actually reserve some time, each partner at QED does, to help companies we do not invest in, even though we pass on the investment decision. Right, okay. At which point it's probably a good time to move on from the kissing frogs and looking for princesses in case your wife ever listens and asks whether you uh, kiss 999 frogs before finding your princess. But one thing that, I mean, I experienced in a different way. So recently I had to go through 350 incoming emails to find half a dozen guests. So that's 2%. But I'm not investing. I'm not investing in them. But that's a bit tedious, let alone going into the kind of depth of conversation that you do. So it must be quite challenging or you must need some personal characteristics or mentality or attitude maybe it's just trying to help as many people as you can anyway to actually have for the sake of argument 998 conversations until you go okay would invest in you because in a sense on that process every day you get up you're almost bound not to catch a fish you go fishing every day and twice a year you catch a fish how does that work psychologically or practically? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not for everybody. I think venture capital is a very difficult field to be in, I think. And it's even more difficult to be successful at it. And I'm not going to claim that I'm successful. I mean, I've been doing it for four years, obviously. It's a short time in terms of venture capital. QED has been at it now for 14 years, and I think the track record there is a bit stronger. So we feel a bit more confident claiming that QED definitely is successful in this space. And I think it takes a combination of a lot of different skill sets. So first and foremost, you got to be really interested in businesses and founders and really relate to it. I've started my own business. All the eight companies I've invested in are way more successful than my business ever was. So, so that's one thing. Um, and if I were to do it again someday, maybe I will be more successful. Who knows? And many of our founders are repeat founders, so you never know. But, uh, you know, I, I was maybe a decent entrepreneur when I did it, but I certainly wasn't the best. But at least having done it and, you know, been through that journey for a period, I know a lot of those challenges. So I find it fascinating to talk to people who are doing that same thing, even if I'm not going to invest. I just I could keep doing it. I mean, I was a member of an angel club at one point and I'd been sort of screening and talking to companies all day. And I was done at work at seven o'clock and I went to meet up with my friends in the angel club and we looked at angel investments from seven to 10 p.m. And that's sort of when you realize that if you can do that, then you're probably a good candidate for the job. So you have to have a deep interest in what you're doing. But it's like any domain. If you play baseball and you want to be one of the best baseball players, you need to actually enjoy baseball and the process of training in the gym and all these kind of things. Otherwise, you won't have enough to go the course. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, from my perspective, I cannot think of a job that's more fun or any way to spend my time that's more fun, right? Um, and I think, you know, things happen under, I mean, I've, I've lived in, I think, six countries by now. And if I'd been more settled or if I'd, you know, grown up in the US and lived there, maybe I would have been an entrepreneur to begin with and never been a VC. Uh, just the way life worked out for me, I started a company once. I've always been interested in being entrepreneurial, but I think, you know, being a VC is absolutely the right balance for me. So I think that's almost for me, I feel like it's the best of both worlds where I get to work with entrepreneurs and founders every day. But I, I do it over such a broad vista that I get these insights that you wouldn't get from just doing one company yourself. You know, you can't say which one is better. Um, I think many times some founders may say that the grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, I think both are great. I do also believe that everybody in their life should start a company at least once. And everybody in their life should learn at least one computer language and one, you know, foreign language. So if possible, these are things that broaden your horizons that one should do. So I'm fortunate to have done it. And I think that makes 
makes me appreciate what I do on a day-to-day basis uh, way much more. Yes, and I can see that as you've, as it were, sattered all the positions around the round table. Having done that, it's so much easier to know what it feels like sitting over there rather than just, I've only ever sat on this side and I've met people like you before. It's not a question of that. It's like, oh, yes, I've been somebody like you before. And when I did it, I wasn't as good or something like that. OK, well, just let me briefly, having done the overview, if you start a new company tomorrow, there's a whole curve to eventually selling that company, whether it's a trade exit or an IPO or a, the liquidity event without which your investors won't get their excitement because you're not a charity. Investors aren't paying you to have a happy life, interesting life. They're paying you to get the exit. But there's a long journey from we have an idea in a pub tomorrow to we list in 10 years. We've got things like product market fit. Oh, wow, people will buy this raspberry and chocolate ice cream. Wow. And then, oh, okay, well, we can make one or two a week at the moment. How do we make 10? (laughs) The scaling up phrase. And then perhaps the growth phase, which is as a craft industry, we're now making 50 ice creams a week or 50 gallons. But then we realise that actually in terms of creating a company that sells a massive value, we need to produce a thousand gallons. We need to go from being a craft industry to a kind of BMW factory. Then just very briefly, as you see pretty much the whole spectrum, what would your sort of uh, points be that you would wish to make, share with the audience about these different phases and, and how that changes things? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, uh, that's a really great question, and there's a few different ways to answer it. Uh, one is going back to the sort of family analogy. One analogy that I've heard quite often that I quite like is that a new company is a little bit like a child. So, you know, zero to one is extremely vulnerable. If you don't take care of it, actually, it could perish. And that goes for the founders and the investors. Everybody has to take care of it, nurture it. When it gets to be two, three years old, now it's like walking, it's moving, it's actually exploring the world, but it doesn't know how dangerous that can be. And it's you know, prone to get into a dangerous accident. So it still needs, in a way, more supervision, but a different kind of supervision. And then as it goes into a later stages, five, six, seven years old, you need more people around the table, schools, teachers, other people help you. So I think there's more people around the boardroom, in a sense, at that stage of the life. And then, as I like to joke, uh, once the company hits their teenage years, the PE guys show up in the shiny cars and they drive off and they don't want to talk to you anymore. And you sit at home sort of broken hearted. Right. But um, so I think I think that's one way to look at it. The, the other way is there's a lot of commonalities at, at each stage. So each stage has a lot of commonalities, but the content of who delivers that need is different. So expertise, yes, you need that at every stage, but the expertise that a partner or a board member or investor provides uh, between sort of the first year of the company to the first two years of the company is different than the expertise a board member needs to provide right before the company is going to IPO. So it's still expertise, but it's a different kind of expertise. So in that context, one thing that we do at QD is we have partners with very, very different skill sets and very, very different uh, life and business experiences. Some of us have been through many IPOs. Some of us have been through many scale-ups. Some of us have been at the table many times going from zero to one. So at QD, you sort of deliver the whole partnership and at different points, different people can provide that. The other thing is honesty. You always need the honesty, and I don't think there's different kinds of honesty at the sort of startup stage from zero to one versus at the scale-up versus at the IPO stage, but that's a sort of constant that always needs to be there. So I think all those things are always the same, but they change in, in sort of a substantive way in terms of how you deliver it. 
Same goes for industry knowledge. So the industry knowledge you need at a very early stage is much more a generalist, you need to do many, many things. So if I'm working with a company that's just been founded, I'm doing all sorts of different things. If I'm working with a company that's more mature, I'll be doing something more specialized to help them as well, probably. Yes, interesting. Okay, now in terms of the final section before we start wrapping up, going back to this basic point that I mentioned earlier that most VCs, most angels will say that they add value, and they will add some value. But one thing particular about you guys is that you've specifically created an infrastructure a division, as it were, of QED investors whose job is to help people. Maybe you can explain a little bit about that infrastructure that you've created and the kind of things that you do. Yeah. So we have a special program that we call QED Belay. And many of the partners work on QED Belay. Um, one of our partners is leading it. And then we have people dedicated to that team, but we all get involved in it. And the view behind QED Belay is basically that we, we have a special way of working with founders that are at the foundation stage. So basically, if you're just having an idea or if you just have the passion and maybe it's two good co-founders that got together and they know they want to start a company in this field, but they want to work out the idea, refine the idea, we can work with them at the foundational stage. And sometimes that involves even helping them find a co-founder. Sometimes it doesn't. There's no rules about it, but the main rule is that we get involved at a foundational stage. And even though we normally spend a lot of time with companies, at this stage, we spend even more time. So we set up a special sort of way to engage with founders at that foundational stage. And we call that QED belay. And belay, obviously, as you know, in rock climbing is uh, holding the rope while uh, somebody else is scaling the mountain. So the point there is that you've got a specific program. You've got one of your partners is in charge of it. His job is to do that well. So it's a function within the company rather than, as you say, a VC partner might normally sit on half a dozen boards and he quotes adds value, you know, in terms of what he knows, what he's experienced. Good. OK, so before we wrap up, where is QED going globally or London wise? What's exciting you about the future? Yeah, I mean, so we've just hired a new partner. I mean, just hired, meaning I think it's been already six, seven months now. Uh, to cover India and Southeast Asia. So we've already done two investments uh, in, in India, which we're very excited about. We're excited about Southeast Asia. We have recently launched a seed stage, very early stage fund uh, focused on Mexico called Fontes. And that's something we're also very excited about. So, you know, when we look at QED, we talk about sort of three ingredients, which is having the founders come to us, seeing the deal flow, second one being sort of capital and third one being having the partners and people to cover those and go after uh, those deals and opportunities. At this moment in time, we feel very fortunate to have all three. We're going after all this globally. We've made investments practically across the globe. I've lost track of how many countries, but LATAM, North America, US, obviously, Europe, UK, uh, Southeast Asia and India now. So it's a very exciting time in our journey. So we'd just like to invite all the founders and uh, potential founders and future founders out there to reach out to us, any of us at QED. Uh, we've launched a new website now as well, so it's been a bit refreshed. You can see all our contact details there and we'd love to engage in conversations. And we're specialists, so we specialize in fintech and sort of the fintech side of prop tech and things that are adjacent to fintech. So that specialism, if that appeals to you and you know we're if you're looking forward to working with somebody that is very hands-on and committed, then we just encourage anybody to reach out. Good. Okay, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners of the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. 
Find out more at www.smart.co enlustedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today so you mentioned a little bit about where you're going and, uh, and what you're after i mean one small topic which is an interesting challenge and i think particularly for techie type people it's globalization versus localism so for the sake of argument facebook or google may look pretty similar around the world and they're very tech they're not fintech but i mean fin obviously varies quite a lot Equally, you're talking about Sweden and Turkey, if you had a startup in each of those, the business culture is different. There are various kinds of things that work in one and the other. America, I always thought, doesn't seem to understand the world particularly well. So one of the things that makes not a lot of sense to me is Americans will talk about Asia and lumping China and India together. I've got a bit of experience of both. Their cultures are very, very different. So how does QED, just briefly, match the globalization, which is similar things are happening around the world in fin and in tech? with localism, which is if you want to do an investment in India or an investment in China, you need people who understand the culture and the context and can judge the people and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think it comes down to the people. So we talk about having fintech expertise, but the people uh, that cover each market for us, whether it's Mexico or Brazil or India, are deeply versed in those markets. And we have a saying that, you know, if, if you're only seeing 80% of the deals in one market, the 20% you're not seeing is probably the best 20%, right? Those are probably the best founders. So we believe in being very deep in markets and the industry expertise applies equally to geographic and local expertise. And that's why, you know, we, we tend to be pretty focused on country by country. You know, how we enter a new country is sometimes accidental. Sometimes we go, we get excited about a founder, a theme, an idea, and we do it. It works out. Um, I believe New Bank, that's uh, now... Uh, you know, you've probably read a lot in the press about its recent valuations. This is one of our first investments in Brazil, and we're lucky to do that uh, at that point in time. Uh, and it's worked out really well. But then, having entered Brazil with Nubank, we've done a lot of other really, really successful investments there uh, in Brazil and in LATAM broadly. So I think, you know, you build up that expertise geographically, and then you sort of stick to those areas where you know the market well. And then sometimes you do have to invest in new markets, but I think you do that very cautiously. Yes, indeed. It's a kind of um, spreadsheet. In your rows, you may have payments or lending or something like that. But in your columns, you've got India and you've got China and Sweden and, and how it's done varies. And I think one thing that people tend not to appreciate unless they've got international experience of finance, which is that although these days we have things like Basel III, or four, five, six, which do apply worldwide, they can apply very differently in different countries. And that finance per se is actually not a thing, but it's a social construct. Hence, fintech in China is very different from fintech in the US, which is quite different from the UK, which is quite di different from Europe. But I guess that just adds to the interest of doing it. If it was completely homogeneous, it'd be a fairly sort of dull world. So before we Wave goodbye to the audience. Is there anything else that we haven't particularly covered about the topic or QED that springs to mind, Joseph? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. Obviously, it's hard to get to know any one topic in a short period of time, but hopefully this has been helpful. Yeah, and thanks a lot for hosting me here, Mike. Well, it's been a great pleasure. I had forgotten if I ever knew it, the connection between Capital One and QED. And you've been very modest, because I remember back in the day, talking 1980s, Clownwatch had an early stage investment unit. And in terms of the famous Top Gear phrase, how hard can it be? 
very early stage investment is much harder than you can imagine. However, results speak for themselves. And I think this shows that one of the things that QED has been successful is adding value. Because no way, if you're a monkey walking to casino, throwing some chips at the roulette wheel of early stages, are you going to get anything like two thirds of those win somewhat? So it's a great job you guys have been doing and long may it continue. And thank you for showing yourself some insights into your world, which I hope will help the listeners at whatever stage they're at. And you can also, I'm sure, reach out to QND. And if you're very lucky, maybe you'll get their help one day and be one of their unicorns. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, watch the fire light dance.